All righty. I'm going to begin this, uh, this next session by reading two New Testament passages. One, I know, but there we are. Uh, one of them is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. The other is Romans 14, 5 through 17, or parts of them anyway. Um, so Matthew 5, 17, this is very well known. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We all make sense of our lives in relation to some larger story about the world. It's just the way we are. We are wired to inhabit a story. I think that would be true of human beings. And the only question is, which story will it be? This idea there's some neutral, non-story place, as it were, in the cosmos, I think is one of the great modern self-delusions that we simply stand and see things objectively as they are, etc., etc. That's not, I think, actually true. So the only question is, which story will it be? Our own personal stories are, of course, not sufficient to sustain us because they're not big enough. We don't even understand them very well, truth be told. This is one of the great dilemmas of the look within yourself and find out who you are. Um, it seems to me that only the deeply insensitive person can find anything robust if you do that. The rest of us self-doubting people will be utterly confused if we look within to find out who we are. It seems to me, anyway. We don't even understand our own stories very well. Looking backwards, we don't remember much, if anything, about the events that first shaped us. The memories we do have are typically fragmented, disconnected. We depend a lot on the stories of other people for a context in which to make sense of our stories, and so on. That's how it is with our personal life stories. 
they usually begin in forgottenness and mystery. And as far as the end of our story is concerned, well, of course, we don't know anything at all about that. So the beginning of our story individually is wrapped in mystery. The end of our story is even more unknown. Where does that leave us? The past escapes our grasp. The future lies beyond our ken. Where are we now? Well, let me tell you where we are now. Uh, to use a great phrase invented by a colleague of mine, all of this leaves us inextricably middled. Inextricably middled in our own story. And usually, it leaves us comprehensively muddled. We don't know who we are, actually, and we don't know where we're going. And sooner or later, many of us come to realize this at some level, at some time. In fact, people have been realizing this for an awful long time. One of the great stories told in Western literature is Dante Alighieri's uh, The Divine Comedy. It's the medieval, but also very contemporary story of one man's journey down into the pit of hell, up the great mountain of purgatory. In Dante's map of the world, purgatory is situated roughly where Australia Australia now is. Um, I'm just telling you, I'm not, I'm not commenting, I'm just saying. So up out of, down into hell, through the mountain of purgatory, out through all the circles of heaven till Dante eventually is gifted a vision of the triune God. It's a physical journey, but it's also a journey that Dante takes into himself to confront his own past, his own capacity for sin, for repentance, and for righteousness. And it's interesting how this story begins. And some of you will know this, perhaps most of you will not. But the lines with which Dante's Divine Comedy begins are perhaps the most famous in all of literature. Here's what he says at the beginning. Midway in the journey of our life, I walk to find myself in a dark wood, the right road, holy, lost, and gone. That is, ladies and gentlemen, the original midlife crisis. Right there. Dante finds himself lost in the middle of a story whose end is mystery. He's middled. He is muddled. We are all likewise wired for story. Our personal stories cannot give us the meaning and purpose that we instinctually, intuitively know that we need. I would say, from a Christian point of view, that's hardwired as the image of God. I think that's, that's what it is. This, this searching for something beyond. This great need is one we all share. And Alistair McIntyre, in his book After Virtue, in an oft-quoted passage, but I'm going to quote it too because I think it's brilliant, uh, puts it this way. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? We enter human society with one or more imputed characters, roles into which we've been drafted, and we have to learn what they are in order to be able to understand how others respond to us and how our responses to them are apt to be construed. 
It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons who receive no inheritance but must make their own way in the world. It's through hearing stories like that that children learn or mislearn what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama in which they have been born and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. I think that's absolutely profound, actually. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? And so our great human question, I think, is to find out which story we're in, what our place is in it. Does this story, for example, have a happy ending or not? Does it even have a happy beginning? What are we to make of the middle? What is the character of this story? And what is the character of the author of this story? Everything else really depends on the answers we give to those questions, I think. And uh, I think everyone has an implicit story, whether or not they realize it yet. And I think one of the very effective ways of talking to people about the gospel is to help them to understand what their own story is. Because they may not have analyzed it yet, but somewhere in there, feeding their beliefs and their actions, there is a story that they believe to be true, in which they find themselves. So, it's very important then, obviously, that we truly understand the biblical story, the biblical narrative. Because this is the story with a capital S that Christian faith claims to be true. This is the story that we believe explains all the fragments of truthfulness that there are in the world. This is the story of all stories. I think that's what it means to say that the gospel is true, that Scripture tells the truth. And this story tells us that the world in which we live is the creation of a personal God who is good, whose most fundamental nature is to love, it tells us, this story, that God has bound himself to his creation by covenant and promise, is determined to bless it, is determined to save it, is determined, where possible, to turn evil into good. It tells us of God's long-term plan to do all of that centered in Jesus Christ. And it tells us that this plan will succeed. Because good and evil are not finely balanced realities in this cosmos. We don't inhabit Star Wars fiction, in which the good and the dark side and the light side of the force are finely balanced, and it all hinges on finding that little channel down which the bomb goes, you remember, uh, in the last movie, and unfortunately in this one too. Um, um, did you get the impression watching that movie that people are just like shuffled the scenes around and then rerun with them? Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank God we live in the real world, uh, not in that one. And in the real world, the Bible says, good is vastly more powerful than evil and will certainly be victorious. So the happy ending is, is assured, really. And all the other happy endings of Western literature rest on that. 
happy ending, actually, to be honest. Well, yesterday and earlier today, we paid some serious attention to the opening chapters of this story. Uh, in this session, I want to take the story a little bit further through uh, Exodus, through Deuteronomy. I want to talk in particular about Old Testament law, and I want to ask the question, how does Old Testament law express the goodness of God, the love of God for Israel and for the world, and what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, this is part of our scripture too, so what are we meant to do with it? How are we meant to preach it? We'll get to that question a bit later. We'll get to the two New Testament passages I read a bit later. First of all, though, let me just point out something which I think is important. Uh, the curiosity that the idea of law in Scripture, Hebrew word Torah, this idea of law is much bigger than what we normally mean nowadays by the word law in our normal discourse. In fact, over 25% of the Old Testament is formally designated as Torah, as the Pentateuch. Think not that I have come to abolish the law, and Jesus is really referring there to the Pentateuch, I believe, not just to legal prescription. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, the second part of the canon. So the law equals the Pentateuch, and that being so, it's pretty obvious that Torah, law, is not simply legal stuff. Right? The Pentateuch contains lots of narratives. We've just been looking at some of those narratives. And these narratives give us instruction, which is really a better way of translating Torah. Instruction, not law. Um, now, in fact, uh, this is very clear in a number of New Testament passages like this one, Galatians 4. Tell me, says Paul to the Galatians, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons. Well, that's a narrative. Yes. But he says, this is the law. So that story is Torah. And there are other biblical passages where the notion of Torah, of law, can be taken even further. Uh, here's one, 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. But actually that comes from the book of Isaiah. In the law. So the law is now much bigger Right? It's prophetic guidance. <laughs> prophetic instruction is also law. Uh, and even more than that, you may remember Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? And that's a quotation from Psalm 82. The Psalms are law, somehow. They're instruction. They're written down for all the good things that 2 Timothy 3 says that Scripture is for, right? So this idea of law is one we have to ponder because a lot of mistakes, I think, in thinking about Old Testament law come from a failure, first of all, to ask the question, what do we mean by that, right? What do we mean by law? We think, when we use that word, of legal realities, I think. If we were to do a little word association game, you'd probably come up with things like law enforcement, law courts, judges, punishments, 
That's the kind of orbit of our modern usage. Well, you get that kind of stuff embedded in biblical Torah. We do get things which I think you can call laws, and we'll get to those. But we also get narratives. We also get poems. Uh, Really, everything in the Old Testament at one level is law, Torah. It's given to us as the measuring stick by which we measure faith and practice, right? doctrine and practice. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful in one way or another as law, essentially, as Torah. So the bottom line here is that the Old Testament Torah actually embraces everything that we might ourselves put under different headings. That's why I prefer the word instruction. I'm going to try very hard from now on not to use the word law, just for that reason. I'll probably say Torah, I'll use instruction, and sometimes I'll forget and I'll use law. But you'll know what I mean. Torah is the instruction of God, whether its form is strictly legal or narratival or whatever, or poetic. This helps to explain why you have a psalm like Psalm 119, a very long celebration of God's Torah. And as you read that psalm, you'll be struck by how broad the idea is of Torah in that psalm. And we often don't quite notice it almost because we already think we know what law is. But the earth is filled with your love, O Lord, teach me your decrees. The the plain implication of that actually is that you're learning God's Torah by observing creation, actually. That's where you're getting your information from. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues all through generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure. Once again, the link appears to be with creational reality, yes? Uh, this, is, this is where the Proverbs go, right? Consider the ant. What can you, why can you learn something from an ant? Because it's teaching you, in a way, Torah. It's teaching you instruction. Um, in biblical thinking, all creatures obey God's laws, except us. And that's why you can learn things, by, by observing the world. Consider the birds of the air, says Jesus. You remember? Uh, books of, like Proverbs and Job are very big on, on this. So all of this comes under the heading of Torah. It's a very big idea, is what I'm saying. Uh, this instruction that we're talking about takes many different forms, at many different levels. Uh, I've talked about the forms, narrative, poetry, and so on. What about the levels? There are at least two levels that I want to talk about. I want to introduce them now, and I want to come back later to talk about them in more detail. As far as I can see, God's Torah does at least two things. First of all, it sets before us a moral vision. That is, it tells us what we ought to be doing, how we ought to be living, right? The ought is the moral bit. So it teaches us ethics, we could call that. What does it mean to be a righteous person? That's the first level. But I'm going to suggest to you today that God's Torah also teaches us about politics. And I don't mean by that just the narrow, debased thing that we now call politics. I mean the big question of politics. What does a good society look like? 
That's what politics used to mean when people were more sensible and righteous. Um, what does a good society look like? So those are both imperatival. Yes, it's about what, is, what does the good person look like? What does the good society look like? So those are two levels within a level, really, if I can put it that way. But the second kind of thing that the law does is not at all aspirational or, or whatever. The second kind of thing that God's law does, God's Torah does, there you see I did it, it sets before us a pragmatic vision. At this level, Torah does not tell us about what we ought to do. It actually tells us much more about how to sort out mess, how to deal with life as it is lived. So in a sense, it's what you ought to do, but it's what you ought to do in response to really bad stuff. It's not aspirational. It's not of the thou shalt kind of command. Um, this is very abstract at the moment. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of it shortly. At this level of pragmatics, we are talking about law, strictly speaking. So just to get the point here, it would be a very unwise legislator in the U.S. who tried to pass a law mandating and attaching punishments, mandating generosity, and attaching punishments to the failure to be generous. Why would that be a bad idea? Well, generosity is a very virtuous thing. It's something we ought to do, but most people would think we shouldn't legislate for it, not least because it won't work. The law has to pay attention to pragmatics, right? It has to do that. So that's one example of the kind of distinction I'm after here. So we do find lots of ethical principles embedded in God's law, but we also find all sorts of other things that are not really about ethics as such. And this is important because it plays in big time to how I think we should read these texts. So I'll come back to that. Just, just hold on to that thought, and I'll come back to that uh, shortly. For the moment, let me just point out one of the things that I think it's uh, crucial we grasp from what I've just been saying about the nature of Torah in the Pentateuch. And that is that what we normally call the law of God is embedded in a narrative. It's embedded in a narrative from Exodus through to the end of Deuteronomy. Long before we get to the book of Exodus, we've already met the God who calls people into relationship with himself, who calls them to behave rightly in relationship to other creatures. And that narrative has already been instructing us long before we get to Mount Sinai. There's already been instruction going on. It should be obvious then that we need to read the laws of Exodus through Leviticus into Deuteronomy in the context of the larger narrative, right? That, that would be the right thing to do. That's why they have this position in the story. It should be particularly obvious this is the right thing to do because of the way that the book of Exodus introduces us to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai by telling us a story about Israel and Egypt, right? So, 
Where do we first come across laws? It's in the context of the Exodus story. And that's like waving a flag to the reader and saying, pay attention. These laws are embedded in a story. If it's true that we can only answer the question, what am I to do, by asking, in which story do I find myself? Well, here's the story. It's the story of the Exodus, which is told in the back of the story in Genesis. That story involves a creation and a fall, and all the things that we've been looking at, covenants with Noah and Abraham, and the survival of that promise of Abraham all the way down through. And now in the book of Exodus, the story of Israel and Egypt, almost drowning under the oppression of the Pharaoh, God remembering his covenant, very crucially, God remembering his covenant with the forefathers and taking action to release the Israelites from Egypt. So God remembers the covenant, acts redemptively, calls Moses to his service, leads the people out of Egypt, and only then do we get Mount Sinai. Only then do we get the law. The Apostle Paul later makes a big deal of this, so this will not be an unfamiliar idea to you. I'm just trying to point out that Paul didn't make it up. He's, he's, he's reading the story. It's already there. Right? Well, eventually we get to Mount Sinai, of course, and uh, here's what we have as a little prelude to the giving of the law. Now, if you people obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words concern the covenant making in Exodus 24. So here's another covenant, right? So Noah, Abraham, Mount Sinai. This is a covenant now with one people. So the Noah covenant is about all living creatures. The Abraham covenant is about all nations. The Sinai covenant is much more closely focused on one nation, but notice the context here. This is extremely important. Although the whole earth is mine, the reminder, the reminder, plan A, this is still about the whole earth being mine. What is Israel's role? The ones who are about to receive the law, they are called to be a kingdom of priests. Now remember, human beings are called to a priestly function in Genesis 2, vis-a-vis -vis creation. What do priests do in the Old Testament? Fundamentally, what priests do is they mediate the blessing of God to other people. That's what priests do. So Israel is called as a nation to the same larger missional task that we saw articulated in the Noah and Abraham covenants. Right? You see that? See how the logic of this works out? Israel is called to mediate God's blessing to the rest of the world, a whole kingdom of priests looking out to the Gentiles. So, you know, when did God start caring about the Gentiles would be another question to ask. Well, right from the beginning, actually. Right from the beginning. So, we're narrowing down in a way, all creatures, all nations, one nation. But the narrowing down of the covenants is still with an eye to the larger agenda. 
still to the big plan. And that's not the end of the matter, because we move on in the story, well beyond our parameters today, but we have to do this to get the big picture. We get to a point where God is still working, and ultimately God embraces uh, into his plan the monarchy of Israel, even though, by the way, the monarchy was an utterly wicked request, you remember. Another example of God accommodating to finding a way of working with, utterly wicked, and yet God takes it to the center of the plan. To the center of the plan. And David makes a covenant with David uh, that involves this everlasting dynasty. This is now a covenant with one Israelite, folks. So you see how we're going here, right? The whole earth, all nations, one nation, one Israelite. And that suggests to me that we're only going to read the parts of this story right if we understand the movement of the whole story here, right? So we've got to read the David covenant in the context of the Sinai covenant, Sinai in the context of Abraham, Abraham in the context of Noah, and Noah in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. And that's how we'll get the whole thing right. That's the story we're in. It's like a Russian doll. Do you know Russian dolls? Each covenant lives inside the other one. And now we can fully appreciate the hope for the world articulated in the Noah and Abraham covenants in terms of how that's going to work out. It's going to work out through the son of David who's going to be coming into the story down the line, as it were. Another helpful metaphor, if you like, for understanding this would be, I don't know what you would call this. I would call it an egg timer, but that really dates me back with the dinosaurs. But you know these timers that you turn upside down and the sand runs through and... What do you? Hourglass. Hourglass, thank you. That gets me off the hook. That doesn't sound so old foggy-ish. So think about the movement of the biblical story as involving an hourglass. It starts at the widest margins and comes inwards. It narrows in, Yeah. So these covenants relate to all creation, all people, to Israel, and to one Israelite. And the consequence is that the hope that the story is still going somewhere survives all the way through the story. And when we get uh, into the New Testament, the hope is picked up in exactly the same way in reverse order. Right? So hope remains... And when we get into the Gospels, we discover one true Israelite, the son of David, Jesus, right? So the one Israelite comes on the scene. He calls to himself a people. First of all, he goes to the lost sheep of Israel, you remember. So that's the the, the bit of the structure that relates to the all people, Israel, and then out to the Gentiles, from that point. So one Israelite, then all Israel, the Jews are called, but of course the purpose is that all people should be called, and the Abraham promise is picked up and developed hugely in the New Testament along these lines. But what's the purpose of all of that? The purpose of all of that is that all creation will be restored, and this comes out perhaps most powerfully in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul speaks of all creation groaning, do you remember? As in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Why does it have to wait? 
It has to wait because we image bearers were put here to look after creation, to help it to flourish, right? That was the whole point of the exercise, right? The image bearers look after the garden, to put it in the language of Genesis 2. We are so dysfunctional, we can't do it, essentially. And doesn't the world around us testify to that, actually? So why does creation groan, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God? Because creation can only be right when the sons of God are redeemed. Right? So you need the sons of God back in the ballgame, sanctified, before creation can be healed. And so we find that Jesus in his love, which is the very love of the Father and the Holy Spirit, saved not just the Israelites and not just the Jews and the Gentiles, but much, much more. In Jesus Christ, God reconciles all creation to himself. And so the world created in love is saved by love. And in my reading, nothing is lost except that which refuses love. That's my reading. Nothing is lost except that which refuses God. That's a wonderful story. I mean, talk about happy endings. It's a story birthed in God's love, permeated by God's love, brought to a wonderful conclusion in God's love. The love of God marks it all, shapes it all, penetrates it all. And we need to get the big story right because all the preaching and reading of the parts depends on getting the big picture right. So this is the broader story context for all the other passages that we might read. It is the broader story context for the giving of Torah in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And that's where we're now going to turn to ask How does all of this affect my reading of Torah? And I'm specifically now thinking of Exodus through Deuteronomy in the first instance. You will know as well as I do that this has been a matter of some debate in the church ever since the beginning. Uh, The book of Acts records vigorous conversations, shall we say, about this very issue. Do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised? Should they be instructed to keep the law of Moses? It's right there in the book of Acts. It's resurfaced throughout history from time to time as Christians periodically have rediscovered the Old Testament as genuine functioning parts of their Bible. And they've asked the question, okay, what does a life obedient to God look like? Now that we have the whole Bible, what does the whole Bible say about that? And so they get into this question inevitably. I mean, if you only think the New Testament is important, you won't get to this question. If you think the whole Bible is important, this question kind of presses itself upon us. And I think we're going through another phase of questioning like that, actually. Um, It's one of the consequences, I think, of a general weariness with a lot of the superficiality of Western Protestantism, a lot of its rootlessness, Um, in a Christian community where perhaps, this is probably true, there's way too much subjective individualism being brought to bear on this question of how we should live. You know, I feel that has now become the currency of our day, right? In that world, serious people are going to be asking, really? That's the basis upon which we're going to make our decisions about how to live? I feel that. 
No, surely it's Scripture. Surely it's the whole of Scripture. So what about the law of God then? What about the law of God? And this has led to very different responses to to that question. And really those responses are based very much on the two passages I read earlier on. Um, Some people, when they ask this question, come to the conclusion that we have left way too much of God's Old Testament law behind. Way too much. That we have to go back to what God objectively said in history and away from how we feel about it and allow Scripture to be Scripture. Proponents of this idea argue strongly that God's law remains God's law because God's character does not change through time. So it's still relevant for us as well. And they tend to go to passages like Matthew 5, the one we read earlier on. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I don't know how it is here in the U.S., but certainly uh, where I live, it's quite easy to find evangelical Christian congregations adopting things like Old Testament Sabbath ideas as part of their church life. Old Testament food laws to some extent, uh, maybe bringing the Passover back into the Easter celebration. Uh, in some cases, and I know this is a, a, a feature of the U.S., in some cases arguing even that the civil law of the Old Testament ought to be the law of the U.S., the so-called theocracy or Christian reconstructionist folks who, who believe that's how seriously we should take the law. It's actually to replace secular law. So some Christians clearly think the Old Testament law means a lot for us. And then some people argue, and they will go to Romans 14. (laughs) They will say, well, no, it doesn't doesn't really mean anything for us. It's It's all dealt with. It doesn't really apply. We're under grace. We're not under law. It's not about external rules anymore. It's all about what's happening in the heart. Um... It's clear the New Testament says all sorts of aspects of Old Testament law don't apply to Christians. If you accept circumcision, says Paul, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Very strong rejection of circumcision for Gentile uh, Christians. Um, So Romans 14 is a a go-to passage for those folks, as it were. Um, So pork, for example, used to be unclean, now clean. There's been a change. Um, So a lot of emphasis here on the way the law is not actually connected directly to the character of God or creation realities, but it's only an aspect of Israelite identity and nothing to do with the Christian church. So this leaves us with with a dilemma. If we're not happy with simply trading one scripture off against another one, Uh, and we want to try and get to a deeper and more coherent level on this. Clearly, we have some thinking to do on this issue. And it comes down to to this. Is Israel's law completely relevant for us down to the last detail, even if it doesn't make much sense? Or, is Old Testament law completely irrelevant to us, because I am not under the law So there. So how are we to make progress on this? Well, this is where I want to go back to my distinction 
between moral vision on the one hand and political vision to some extent on the one hand and pragmatics on the other. Because I think the answer to this dilemma lies in recognizing that not all of God's Torah is of the same sort. It's not all designed to do the same kind of thing. I want to begin then by talking about the moral vision. So this is the odd stuff. This is the stuff where people are instructed, given commandments indeed, to be and to do certain kinds of things. Certainly, Old Testament Torah has these moral ideals embedded in it. And you find plenty of them in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Most obviously, this is true in the Ten Commandments. The first few commandments tell us about loving God. The rest tell us about loving our neighbor, honor your father and mother, do not murder, and so on. You you know these well. It seems obvious that these are not laws in the modern sense of the word. Um, They do resemble genuine laws elsewhere, but these are not of themselves laws, I think. You will notice there are no penalties attached to failing to keep them, for example. Laws are typically marked by penalties. So these are not likely law in that proper, narrow sense of the word as we use it. In particular, it's very hard to know how anyone could ever have been prosecuted for breaking the Tenth Commandment. How do you prosecute, unless you're a very effective thought police, how do you prosecute somebody for coveting, wanting other people's stuff? You can't do it, right? So it seems to me the Ten Commandments are best thought of and are regarded throughout Scripture as basic, high-level, ethical principles. Basic, high-level, ethical principles. The closest analogy in our world would be constitutional law, actually. The kind of law that's your identity. It doesn't get to the business of breaking laws in the plural. It's about who you are. It's that kind of thing. So these are high-level, aspirational statements. And I would have thought with this kind of thing, there is no doubt and should be no doubt of their relevance to us. Because in this case, it is absolutely true these are tied to the character of God. And it's really obvious that Jesus and the apostles thought so too and referred to them and used them and so on. So I think in the Reformed tradition anyway, we're pretty comfortable with the idea the Ten Commandments actually do uh, apply to us as much as uh, to anyone before us. That's how historically they've been understood. This is a a bit of a, I think, a bit of a uh, no-brainer. So we're on firm ground. But... Before we move on, let me just point out a couple of things about the Ten Commandments because there has been a tendency sometimes in our, in our Reformed theology and in our practice, our preaching, there has sometimes been a tendency to preach the Ten Commandments as if they were a kind of self-sufficient summary of everything that's really important to God. A kind of back pocket you know, checklist that you can whip out, as it were. Did I steal today? No. Okay, I'm good. I kind of, you know, that self-sufficient summary. Well, let me just object to that. The Ten Commandments are not exhaustive principles. That's pretty clear, I think. 
they're mainly negative in character. You will have noticed. Don't do this. Don't do that. They tell us a number of things we shouldn't do, but they don't tell us a whole bunch of things we should. Right? So they tell us we shouldn't steal, but they don't tell us what our duty is to the poor. You see what I mean? But both of those are important biblical ideas, right? So the Ten Commandments are pretty selective in the kinds of things that they say. They don't mention lots of moral imperatives, lots of aspects of the moral vision that turn up elsewhere in the Bible. For example, we're often told in the Bible that we should be generous. Generosity is a big ethical principle in Scripture. But generosity is not commanded in the Ten Commandments. We're told in the Ten Commandments that adultery is wrong. But you and I both know there's more to sexual sin than simply adultery. In fact, Job, in Job chapter 31, when he's defending his integrity and he's talking about loving his female neighbor properly, he doesn't quote the Ten Commandments and stop at adultery. What he actually says, if you remember, is, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Right? Quoting a commandment wouldn't have done it. He was defending his integrity. And so he goes to the heart of the matter. You'll recognize this as a, as a New Testament idea. Right? But it, it, wasn't, it didn't just happen one day in the Sermon on the Mount. It came from somewhere else. This is where it came from. So the, the, the Ten Commandments don't speak about lust. Does that mean God doesn't care about lust? I profoundly doubt it. With good scriptural reason, I think. So here's the big problem with those Ten Commandment fridge magnets that you get. Um, I came across a bunch of these on the internet. You can find almost anything on the internet. Uh, my favorite one is the one on the bottom right. I hope you can see it. The Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. Uh, the selling line on the internet is, hang this cool magnet on your fridge. I don't think that was irony, by the way. I just think that was... Anyway, hang this cool magnet on your fridge and remind yourself and everyone else that we cannot pick and choose which commandments are right and wrong. Well, that's true, of course. We can't. But here's something else we can't do. We can't just put our fridge magnet up and a little tick list beside it and every day just take the list and say, phew, I'm good. Right? That's the danger of this. Okay, I've, I've done my loving God, loving my neighbor gig for the day. I'm in good shape. It's a bit more challenging than that. In other words, the Ten Commandments don't define by themselves the biblical moral vision. Which is kind of interesting, given how high a profile they have, oftentimes. I mean, I know you guys... I follow the news occasionally. So I know you've had your arguments about the Ten Commandments in courthouses, and some folks have the Ten Commandments in their front lawn, you know, on little replica tablets as a way of saying we're a Christian, a Christian family or a Christian nation or whatever. Well, okay, but the Ten Commandments are not an exhaustive summary of Christian ethics, so it's a strange place to take your stand, don't you think? I hope I'm not offended. Well, I don't really mind if I'm offending you. I just think it's true. They're not really the place you want to take your stand, it seems to me. Right? Because they're not really an exhaustive summary of, of Christian biblical ethics. And uh, sermons that function like verbal fridge magnets, 
are, are going to be deficient. Right? Now, I think this helps to explain a lot about Jesus' conversation with the rich young man. Do you remember that story? Um, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commandments. All these have I kept. What do I still lack? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And I think he had a fridge magnet mentality. Okay, I, I'm doing okay, Jesus. I'd like you to confirm for me I'm doing okay. I've kept all the commandments. Jesus says, good for you. Go away and be generous now. And he's not up for it. At least he wasn't up for it right then. We don't know if he repented, which is different from apologizing. Negatives cannot exhaust and do not exhaust the moral vision of the Bible. It's one of the mistakes we've made, I think, sometimes. When Jesus sums up the law, he does it positively, does he not? If you're summarizing the law, what's it all about? It's about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That too is not new in the New Testament. It's picking up two very famous Old Testament texts. So where does that get us to in our reading of the Ten Commandments? I think we only really understand the Ten Commandments if we refuse to see them as a kind of self-sufficient set of moral absolutes and slightly adjust our focus and see them as partial expressions of genuine moral absolutes. The genuine moral absolutes, the things which are true in all times and all places, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. What are the Ten Commandments? They're high-order illustrations of some of the things that that looks like. That's what I think they are. Um, so, one of the corollaries of that is, when we're talking about the moral vision of the Old Testament, or the moral vision of Scripture, we must look much more broadly than simply at the Ten Commandments. There are lots of other places where we're taught Torah. We've been looking at the narratives Later, tomorrow, we'll look at the Proverbs, for example. There's a lot going on in this business of fearing the Lord and loving your neighbor department. And uh, we must be careful not to fall at the first hurdle here, in some ways, I think, by misconstruing what the Ten Commandments are about. So, one way or another, there is a moral vision in Scripture. We are called to a certain shape of life, yes? Uh, we are given rules. I, I don't think we should be shy about that. I mean, we're given markers on the road. Here's where this, you've got to walk in here. You don't walk over there. These, this is a shape of life, right? But it's positively framed more than it's negatively framed. The negatives only make sense in terms of the positives. And indeed, those of you who have brought up teenage kids will know the futility, particularly nowadays, of simply saying to teenage kids, thou shalt not, without giving them an explanation of what they shalt, if I can abuse the old King James Version. So, you know, thou shalt not engage in premarital sex, well and good. Why is that? Well, because it's a lot better to do it the other way, actually. You know, what's the positive vision that explains the negative commandment? I think that's the right way to do it. I think it's the only way that works, frankly, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, if people pick us up as people who just are always saying what you shouldn't do, but can't give a good account of what you should, that's not credible. It's not credible to kids. 
It's not credible to anyone else, I don't think. So, we have a moral vision. But, in addition, we also find in the Pentateuch all sorts of other kinds of rules and laws which really are not so much about painting a moral vision. That's my proposal to you. They're good, because God is good, but they're not given for the purpose of giving us a moral vision to pursue. They're given for other reasons. So, for example, um, it's not that they're unconnected to moral principles, but here's an example. So we have the sixth commandment, do not murder. That's not really a law, it's a principle, as I have just argued. But you do then get lots of case law, if this, then that, that arises out of it, yes? Uh, In Exodus 21 to 23, you'll find a lot of specific cases. If this should happen, this other thing should happen. The principles are informing the other laws, but those other laws are not themselves the principles. They're what the Israelites in particular are to do when things go wrong, very often. The if gives you the case, and then there's a solution uh, to it. If such a thing happens, this other thing should follow. Clearly, we're working out some biblical principles, but these are different kinds of things. These are not exhaustive. I can't imagine that we have in Scripture every if that ever existed in ancient Israelite society. What I believe we have is a number of illustrative ifs to show you the kinds of things that were put in place in ancient Israel to allow their society to function without imploding, without dying on the vine, as it were, right? This is often what law does in any society. It gives you rules by which to play for the purpose of not killing yourselves, basically, right? Going on together somehow, some kind of justice, some kind of redress, right? That's what law actually achieves. So we don't have, I believe, every case law that ever existed. And one of the difficulties about reading the Old Testament legal sections is that as you read them, they don't even appear necessarily to be connected to each other in any obvious way. So you move from one to the other, and and it's difficult to read without some background. And I think actually a good background commentary It's pretty important if we're going to make sense of these things. Uh, So sometimes even the individual law is pretty obscure. Sometimes we don't really understand enough about the background even to know what the law was put there for. Uh, My favorite example of this would be the well-known you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Uh, By the way, if you ever quote that using that translation and you have ESL people in your congregation, just clarify to them that we're talking about a baby goat because it's not obvious to them that's the case. And I've had more than one outraged Chinese student asking why God would be boiling children in milk in the first place. So it's about baby goats. But even so, why? Why? Um, List of sins I'm thinking of committing today. Murder, slander, boiling a baby goat in its mother milk. So, you see the point here. Um, This law must have made sense back in Israel's day because it's repeated three times in the Pentateuch. It's not a trivial matter, whatever it meant. 
But do we have any idea really what it meant? No, we don't. We can make some guesses, and they're not bad ones, but do we know? No, we don't. So we're dealing with law that is designed for particular times and places, makes sense in that context, often obviously reflects bigger principles, but it's time-bound, it's historically conditioned, it's for those particular people in that cultural context, and we have to be a good deal more careful when we're dealing with that law because we can't assume it was designed just for us. With the moral vision, I think we can assume it is. With this kind of material, not. What we actually have in this kind of law is a legislative structure designed to do some good. I think it's very important. Let me tell you why I think it's important. If you think that all of this stuff is also God's ideals and not simply God working with the society he has to achieve some good ends, it follows you will have to argue that we should bring that all over and apply it to ourselves. If it's ideal, by definition, it's something we should be doing. You with me? So it really matters whether, whether my argument is right here or not. Because otherwise, the folks who believe you should be bringing the whole thing back and making it into your state law are right. right? I don't think they're right. I don't think they're right because I think they've misconstrued the nature of what we're dealing with uh, here. What is law in the Old Testament of this kind designed to do? It's designed to constrain evil. It's designed to limit evil. It's designed to clear up some of the damage caused by evil. It's not designed to bring in the kingdom of God. It's not even designed to produce virtue. It's actually designed to deal with the brokenness of things in a very pragmatic way, to prevent things from being worse than they need to be, to give some protection, for example, to women and slaves. But of course, what the law says about that, it falls very far short of women as the image bearer of God, for example, or slaves as the image bearer of God. And unless we make that distinction, we're going to get into trouble. Just reading the Bible, we're going to get into trouble. So a lot of this law is about, here's a mess. How can you clear up some of the mess? That's what's going on. That's good. It's very, very good. But it's not ideals. It's not moral vision that we're talking about. It's possible that we might learn something from these pragmatics about the kinds of ways we might then legislate or organize ourselves or live. It's perfectly possible that might be the case. Uh, for example, uh, think about the law about not gleaning, not, not harvesting right to the edge of your field, but leaving some for the poor. Now, uh, you may not have a field, you may, but you may not. But the general principle beneath that law is do not engage in profit maximization. Right? Do not behave as if what you have is just your stuff, as if you're not holding it in trust for God, as if you have no responsibility for the poor. Pretty obviously, that's the principle. So applying the law to an urban society might not make any sense, but applying the principle, I would think that's a pretty big biblical principle, generally speaking. It's not hard to see that. It's not rocket science, right? So, um, while we are paying attention to the moral vision as we should, we might well learn also quite a bit 
from a lot of the other things the Old Testament law has to say. But we have to remember that fundamentally that kind of law was given first and foremost to the Israelites in their own cultural historical circumstances, and we have to operate with, with caution, with a degree of caution when we uh, deal with that kind of text. So I can sum all of this up really in the following way, I hope. The Old Testament Torah, of whichever kind, may be directly relevant to us in calling us to act out the moral vision of the Bible. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about in this zone. The Ten Commandments for sure, but not just that. Lots of other verses as well that appear to be imperatives attached to the character of God and addressed to us who wish to be like God. The moral vision of Scripture, Old and New Testament. God has not changed. Secondly, Old Testament Torah may be indirectly relevant to us because it may offer us models for our own attempts to moderate evil in a fallen world. Right? So here are God-ordained ways of moderating evil in ancient Israel. Can we learn stuff from that? Yeah, very likely we can, for sure. But just picking a verse from Leviticus and putting it over here and saying, let's do that, that's not going to be the way to do it. We have to be thoughtful and intelligent about it. And then thirdly, and the whole scripture tells us this, Torah may in places, in many places, not be relevant to us at all because it has to do with Israel and not with us. Uh, in particular, we have to understand that quite a bit of the legislative material in the Old Testament is given to help the Jews, the Israelites, to remain separate from the nations round about so a lot of the ritual legislation, things like circumcision and so on, they're all about making sure this sorry bunch of people, God's people, survive long enough that the Messiah can come and we can move into a new phase of the story. So a lot of this is about maintaining the authenticity of Israel as bearing witness to the one true God to some extent. It stands to reason that's exactly the kind of law that will not be part of the church's life because we are now a global church, Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul gets so upset about circumcision. It's missing the point. Right? We're beyond that. That's back then. So the third category is also important. My point is, though, that all three categories have to be in our heads. It's not an all-or-nothing game. It's not about playing Romans off against Matthew. It's a, it's a more thoughtful, reflective thing that we need to be doing in dealing with this material. Because at the end of the day, we're not just talking about a book of rules with an index, you know. Just go and look up the index and apply the rule and everything will be okay. We're actually talking about something, and this is true of everything we're doing, I think, this week, that requires thoughtfulness, wisdom, consideration, uh, so that we really do read and preach the Old Testament truly and well. And don't make the mistake of being biblical and wrong, as I put it the other day.